Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we are concluding our look at the Universal Horror Films with their last attempt to create a horror icon. They had had success with characters in films like Dracula and Frankenstein and The Mummy, Wolfman, and uh, this was their sort of, would you say it was their last ditch effort to create a new iconic character? I would, yes. And that was, it was based around actor Rondo Hatton. So the films we are going to be looking at today are 1944's The Pearl of Death, starring Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes, and then House of Horrors and The Brute Man from 1946, which were both released shortly after he died. Yeah. Yeah, so he had shot both of those films and then died before either of them were released. So by 1944, Universal had pretty well milked dry all of their previous horror franchises, <laughs> to put it in a, a, I don't know, a weird way. Their horror films were just sagging and deflated, devoid of milk at this point. <laughs> just <I'd>... a milkless <laughs> udder. Ah. <laughs> uh. And of course, we would start this episode with a uh, grotesque image, because we're talking about Rondo Hatton, and uh, unfortunately, his grotesque image is uh, is what they were banking on, trying to make a horror star out of him, the horror star without makeup. Yeah, and it's um, Rondo Hatton was uh, afflicted by a genetic disorder called acromegaly. I think acromegaly. Acromegaly? Okay, that makes There's no way to say it that doesn't sound wrong. Acromegaly? Acromegaly. Yeah, which... It sounds like an adjective. Like, I feel all acromegaly today. (laughs) It kind of, it reminds me of, like, gigantism. Yeah. Is it the same, is is that the same thing? They're related, like, Andre the Giant had both. Okay. And, uh, I believe Carl Stryken from Adam's Family and Twin Peaks Mm -hmm. uh, forms of both. And he was also in uh, Ewok's Battle for Endor. I just got to throw that out there. Oh, okay. He wasn't an Ewok, was he? Was that before he was struck with the... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh. Uh, no. Okay. He was not an Ewok. But yeah, it's odd because uh, allegedly Rondo Hatton uh, became afflicted with this because of exposure to German mustard gas in World War One. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's the... Uh, that's from Universal Publicity. Oh. Which, you know, you always take that, that with a grain of salt. Then? Yeah. But I mean like we spoke in um an earlier episode about people's reactions to people coming back from the war. And uh, I think we related it to like people just like seeing a weird looking person in a horror movie and screaming. Mm-hmm. Whereas today we're we see a person who doesn't necessarily look normal, what we would what we would call normal. And I feel like we try to be polite. Yeah. But there are certain moments in horror movies of the 30s and 40s where someone sees someone else who's just a little off and they scream bloody murder. <laughs> yeah. Or like, you know, it's like the record scratches and everybody like looks up. Yes. <laughs> as they come walking into the room and they're like, oh my, you know. I mean, uh, yeah, and in these 
films here, I mean, he's referred to as, you know, the perfect specimen of the Neanderthal man, Hmm. Um, you know, monster, uh, brute. A creeper. A creeper, yes. Yeah, Yeah, the the disease... uh... My source for this is dictionary.com. Let me just read the definition. Sure. A chronic disease characterized by enlargement of the bones of the head, the soft parts of the feet and hands, and sometimes other structures due to excessive secretion of growth hormone by the pituitary gland. Mm. Yeah, so that sounds like... um, Sounds like gigantism. Mm. Because it's also... Pituitary gland, I believe. It's like... Yeah. And it's also reminiscent of, um, I mean, in regards to horror movies in Son of Frankenstein, when uh, Wolf Frankenstein is examining Frankenstein's monster, he says, like, he says something about the pituitary gland, like, mm-hmm. working at, like, top speed or something, and how that explains the large size, which is odd, because... You know, through the other movies, we've been led to believe that it's just, oh, those are the parts that Henry Frankenstein put together. Right. Although, Boris Karloff, between 1931 and 1939, had become a little less gaunt. And he is also played up as a, as a little bigger in Son of Frankenstein, so we can see it as like, oh, okay, so in addition to like being made of these different parts of different people, he also has this glandular issue, which is making him larger, which would then explain why he's launching junior in the next movie. Ah, there you go. Yeah. It's his, uh, his agromeglia. Yeah. And, um, and there's a movie in 1944, um, called the monster maker, which uh, I haven't seen in a long time. I don't have fond memories of it. Uh, the the monster of that movie is basically this like mad scientist who ends up becoming afflicted with acromegaly. They actually say the the term, and uh, it's weird how like right as Universal was beginning to uh, play up Rondo Hatton as like a monster, there was this um, Poverty Row movie. Uh, I believe it was PRC. Um, that was just talking about the disorder and using it as like the impetus for monstrosity. Mm. Yeah. So it's interesting that they would sort of, that universe would latch on to this guy who before Pearl of death, he's playing sort of bit parts. Yeah. He, um, he was living in Tampa, Florida in the early thirties and Henry King, um, we discussed him briefly in our Bluebird episode. He was like a house director at uh, Fox. Um, he wasn't the director of the Bluebird. I don't want to lay that on him. We just He just <laughs> came up in the conversation. That was Walter Lang. Um, but yeah, Henry King uh, was shooting a movie um, around Tampa, and he happened to see Rondo Hatton, and he was like, it's sort of like a weird version of James Whale spotting Boris Karloff in the commissary at Universal. Mm. Um, he was just like, oh my God, that face. I have to photograph this face. I have to put him in the... And he just gave him a small part in the movie. And he was like, come with me to Hollywood and I'll make more movies with you. And Rondo Hatton, I think he was a reporter at the time. He was just like, no, I'm good. He was a reporter. I believe so. Huh. 
and he just he just stayed there and then um there was like a, a William Wellman film that was also shooting around there and he ended up having a bit part in that but he didn't seem to have any interest mm. in pursuing it and then um in the late 30s he ended up going out there and he appeared in some Henry King movies <laughs> So I'm just imagining that there's like this six or seven year period where Henry King is just like contacting him all the time, like, please. <laughs> and he just shows in like movies like in old Chicago and Alexander's Ragtime Band. He just, you know, it's like blink and you miss him kind of. Um, I don't know what finally convinced him to go, maybe because, um, I mean, if you think in terms of like uh, history, he might have been doing a little better financially at the beginning of the Depression than he was in the middle of the Depression. And that might have been like, oh, this, this this reporting thing isn't really working out that well. I got to go to Hollywood or right. something. There's this guy who is literally offering, offering me work. Yeah. And, I mean, Henry King had a pretty decent reputation at the time. Not so much these days, but he was respected. Um, and I, you know, he shows up in some other movies. And the, the saddest, when you go through his IMDb credits, uh, you know, he's in... The 1939 Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I feel is like the best version of that story. And his credit is Ugly Man. Oh, and no. it's like, oh, that poor guy. Like, yeah. But I mean, it, they have like an Ugly Man contest in the film and it deals with the plot. But like, it's just credited as Ugly Man. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it makes sense that like, you would want to put him in those kinds of roles. I mean, cause his face is really remarkable looking. Yeah. And, and this was the era when like, uh, like sideshow entertainment, like freak shows and stuff were kind of, uh, like on the downslide, people were starting to be like, this just seems, we're just laughing at these people. Like kind of like we're, we're gawking at like, you know, they would say nature's mistakes and stuff like that. Um, right. And this is like, I mean, by 1944, I mean, there had already been like movies like Freaks, yeah. Todd Browning's Freaks in 1932, right? Yeah. And that was uh, sort of really portrayed people who were in that situation of sort of being like taken advantage of for their malformities. Um, and portraying them in a very sympathetic, positive light and kind of giving them their uh, justice. The thing that I think is uh, is interesting about Rondo Hatton sort of being positioned into the role of like a star is that unlike somebody like Boris Karloff, who has this wonderful cadaverous look, um, unlike Boris Karloff, like he doesn't seem to have the acting chops. And that could very well be because of the fact that... Uh, <laughs> He had no interest of really being an actor. Yeah. And was sort of just like brought into it because of his, just because of the way that he looks. The motives behind making him a star are just, I don't really get it. I don't understand, like somewhere in Hollywood, there's just like this person sitting there like, oh my God, this Rondo Hatton guy. <laughs> He is going to put butts in seats. Like, yeah, that's, that's what that it is weird because it, like it totally makes sense. Like the role that he has in Pearl of Death, he, he's perfect for it. Yeah. And the way that they use him in that movie is really great. 
but nowhere are you thinking like, oh yeah, he can carry an entire franchise of films sold on him alone. Um, I mean, and he comes across great in Pearl of Death, partly because, I mean, he has no speaking lines. You get to House of Horrors, and he has a few speaking lines. Yeah. But you get by the time he gets Brute Man, he's chatting it up all over the place, and you really start to realize, like, okay, yeah, he is not really well-suited for this at all. No. And one of... Um, yesterday, for the first time, I watched The Spider-Woman Strikes Back. And he actually gives a fairly decent performance in that movie. But he plays a mute servant. And that helps a lot. Right. Like, it's... Uh, and, I mean, you can't... It's one of those things, like, you watch a lot of movies and you'll see, like, these actors just acting poorly. And sometimes you're just, like... you. You don't get offended necessarily, but it's just frustrating when you think of like all the actors who were out there, um, who weren't cast and stuff, like who are trying to get by. But with Rondo Hatton, you just have to feel sorry for him because he's just. I'm sure nobody had a gun to his head saying you need to be an actor, but like, right. I I don't know. Like it's just it's just a really weird situation. I mean that's that is what he brings to his roles is a real sense of of sympathy mm. like i feel like um like even when he's delivering lines about like you know i'll kill him or you know you be quiet and he's trying to be sort of like imposing like he you don't feel like he's really imposing at all he feels like a like a naive child or something yeah and i mean what he was in real life was a man who was in constant pain like every minute of the day when he was just walking around and just existing like he i don't know like the details of his like specific case or anything but i do know that at one point his cheekbones um had to be replaced by steel oh my gosh yeah i can't even can you imagine that like and like knowing that and then re-watching these films for this episode like you can see like this distinct line on his cheekbone where like okay yeah like i always you know watching them before I found that out, it was just like, oh, this is just what this thing does. Mm-hmm. But those are just like these, basically steel bars in his face, in his skull. Yeah, and then uh, I'm, I'm over here like, you know, boy, he really isn't emotive, is he? You know, he's not, he's not emoting <laughs> with his uh, his face. <laughs> uh, that's because half of the bones in his face are metal. <sighs> yeah, that's awful. And it's like... um Shortly before they tried making a, a horror star out of Rondo Hatton, they tried it with uh, the actress Aquanetta. Um, and she had some small roles here and there. She was in one of the Inner Sanctum movies with Lon Chaney Jr. She had her own short-lived series as uh, Paula the Ape Woman. And that was like Captive Wild Woman... Jungle Captive and Jungle Woman. Jungle Woman, they ended up getting a different actress. I'm not sure what ended up happening, but apparently they decided, okay, Aquanetta is not going to be... Not panning out. Yeah. And she um, she has a great presence, and she's a very beautiful actress, but her acting ability is slightly above uh, Rondo Hatton's. Mm. And um, of, of her uh, Ape Woman movies... <laughs> I've only seen Captive Wild Woman, 
which is a good time. And in that movie, she has very limited dialogue. Mm. And she comes off fairly well in it. Um, but I, the film she was in, in the Inner Sanctum series, she has a lot of dialogue. And it's... I don't even remember which of those films it was. Um, I just remember her standing awkwardly saying these words that just didn't feel right coming out of her. And like Lon Chaney Jr. was acting circles around her. That's that's right. how her acting level was. <laughs> so they were, I mean, Universal was like trying different things at this point. I mean, they could tell, you know, they were nearing the end of Karis the Mummy. Right. The, the final film in that series, The Mummy's Curse, came out in 1944. Yeah. And, um, you know, with, Frankenstein's monster basically became a supporting player in the Wolfman movies. Uh, and Dracula was almost making cameos in them. Right. <laughs> like, and that, that was over by house of Dracula in 45. And, um, so they were trying to find some way to keep their horror films alive. Yeah. And like, there were other non horror franchises that were doing really well there. Like, um, Abbott and Costello were already there and they were doing, they had been doing films there since 41. Um, they were starting a slow decline at the time, uh, in like the mid forties, but you know, they were still profitable, but they had the Sherlock Holmes series, Mm. which, uh, the first two with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce as Holmes and Watson were made over at 20th century Fox in 1939. But then starting 1942, uh, they moved to Universal, and Universal ended up making 12 of these over the course of four years. Yeah, that's unbelievable. And I mean, the, you know, you, we, there's a lot of talk today about sort of like franchise burnout with like superhero movies or you know, like, like the Marvel movies or, you know, Star Wars movies or whatever, but it's like 12 movies in four years. That's crazy. Yeah, but I mean, this is just before the dawn of the television era. Yeah, I mean, that's the big difference. And I mean, yeah, and this is what, you know, you you watch your weekly TV shows now, and it's basically the same thing, except, you know, I mean, even more so. Yeah, this, you'd get, like, about three films a year or so. Yeah, if it was TV, you'd be getting, like, 22 to 30 films a year at that time. I mean, the shows in the 50s had, like, tons of episodes per year. Yeah, and watching Pearl of Death, this is the first... Uh, Sherlock Holmes film from the from the Universal Basil Rathbone series that I had seen, and uh, that's that's what I was immediately struck by. I mean, the the, the movie's only just like it's just roughly over an hour long, um, as all of these movies are, uh, mercifully in a lot of cases. <laughs> um, but not the case with uh, Pearl of Death. Pearl of Death uh, is uh, actually I really really enjoyed it, and it really felt like it was a part of. A, a an ongoing show, I, you know the 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 modern, the modern equivalent would be like a you know a TV show, or like something like the the BBC Sherlock show. Um, but yeah, I really liked how it was just sort of like to the point of the story. You know, it didn't it didn't fill itself with all this other kind of extra stuff extra baggage, extra plot lines and over the top, whatever else. It just was like, oh, here's the story. You know, we're going to tell it. And it was satisfying because 
watching Basil Rathbone and uh, who played Watson? Nigel Bruth. Nigel. Ni- <laughs> <laughs> Nigel Bruth. Nigel Bruce. Yeah, I mean they're both great. They're they're wonderful to watch. Yeah, and... Nigel Bruce is a lot better here than he was as um, I believe it was Mr. Luxury in the Bluebird. <laughs> oh, that's where I recognized him from. Yeah. Well, oh, and also no. Rebecca and Suspicion. Oh, okay. Yeah. Who did he play in Rebecca? He, um, was, um... he was the... I don't remember who exactly he was. He dresses up as, like, uh, like a muscle guy for the costume party. He comes in with, like, a leopard print thing okay. and, like, the inflatable okay. weights. Gotcha. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, I loved his Watson. It was uh, really great. Yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of like, Holmes purists uh decry his performances because um he's a bit too bumbling or a bit too yeah because uh, in the original comedic. stories i guess watson was well what all the Holmes stories are written by the character of watson right and they're like oh you know holmes came in today and said this and this woman appeared and we have to solve this thing now and you know um and so like he's the narrator of all the stories so to make him more of like a, a present character you know, they had to give him some sort of, like, attributes. So they, I mean, Nigel Bruce, you know, that was his persona, sort of. So, like, when they cast him, he just became, like, oh, a Nigel Bruce-type character. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know, there, there are several points throughout the series where, I mean, it is Dr. Watson. He is a physician, and he sometimes uses his medical knowledge to help but then there are also times when he's just very confused easily by things like Sherlock Holmes being in disguise and he doesn't get it and like, or like he just falls down a lot. And... <laughs> or in Pearl of Death, the bit where uh, he has the newspaper clipping accidentally glued to his uh, arm. That was quite a lengthy bit. Yeah, and it goes, <laughs> and it goes on. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's not particularly uh, the, the, the funniest moment that he has. My favorite uh, little bit that he had was with the pearl. He kept sticking it in his mouth. Yeah. Which, was... <laughs> it, it's you know, it's it was funnier the second time it happens because it's just for no reason at all. The first time he has the pearl and he's trying to hide it, so he sticks it in his mouth. And then, But the second time around, they're in the museum, and there's a demonstration <laughs> of, like, how the alarm system works. And so, the, you know, the museum curator is like, you know, oh, yeah, go ahead, take it off. And so he pulls the uh Watson takes the pearl off of the pedestal and all the alarms go off and all of like the, the bars come down on the windows and the doors and stuff and uh it's like all right give it back and then he just pulls it out of his mouth again <laughs> like it's just like oh yeah that's where i put the pearl he got that taste of pearl and he just yeah. couldn't get enough um this is a little moment but i thought it was kind of funny um but yeah it was uh in rondo hatton um really make i feel like you know he makes such a great debut do you like how i said that debut debut <laughs> so he makes such a great debut in this movie um because there's so much build-up to revealing him where, 44 minutes in yeah know? where we're like we're hearing about the well we're seeing the results of this uh killer who's going around strangling people and breaking their backs uh and, and they're dying of of spinal separation which must be a horrible way to die <laughs> and we see evelyn anchor's face when she finds out that the creeper's been around like her place right yeah early in the yeah right at the beginning of the movie mm. um we're hearing about this guy known as known only as the creeper and 
yeah, her shocked look of like, oh, not that guy. This might be her best performance, which I mean, she is like the queen of universal horror, sort of. I mean, just like, you know, the Wolfman, Ghost of Frankenstein, just like several of them. She just shows up. Captive Wild Woman, she was in that. Um, But she gets to play like sort of several characters in one in this. Yeah, she's like always kind of in disguise and sort of like trying to. uh, And she just feels like um, like you feel her anxiety. Mm. Um, And she's trying to get these things done and uh trying to outwit sherlock holmes which you know we can all guess how that works out um so yeah we're we're hearing about the creeper and then we start to see him just in just his shadow casts along the wall and along the floor as he's coming creeping into people's rooms and, and such and then we're starting to see him like in silhouette and it all builds up to this reveal where he's in the back of of a car and he's completely in shadow and like they're sort of talking about him in the front seat and then they pull up to this house and the light reveals his face and uh by that time you're just so ready for it you know and it's like and you see that face and it's i don't think he looked i don't think he's looked better in any of the movies after that no and then, uh, you know, he's used sparingly after that. I mean, he, uh, you know, we see him start to go after his sort of final victim, but then turn on his uh, master, for lack of a better word. And he actually, I mean, Sherlock Holmes is one of the great, like, unflappable characters, but you see fear in his eyes as the creeper is approaching. And like, yeah, yeah. When someone who usually shows no fear mm-hmm. looks terrified, that really helps the audience to, like, understand the threat. Yeah, for sure. This was a... Gr- like, if Rondo Hatton had had the proper acting ability to, like, move forward with this, this would have just been an amazing way to introduce a new horror star. Yeah, and I can see where, like, you know, somebody at Universal was probably watching that movie and being like, that guy, you know, we can we can totally pivot that guy into this whole... And they call him the Creeper in Pearl of Death. Yeah, the Hoxton Creeper. And then, lo and behold, House of Horrors, he's just referred to as the Creeper still. And then again in The Brute Man, he's just the Creeper. Yeah. Um, so it's clear that the Pearl of Death was really like, uh, you know, they saw something in him and it probably had everything to do with that, that reveal and like the, the presence that he has in that movie. The problem in, in House of Horrors and Brute Man at least is like, suddenly we're not, you know, he's not being shot in a way that really, uh, helps him at all, really helps his, him feel more imposing we're seeing him in a lot of flat lighting. We're seeing him sort of just like, not really, just sort of sitting there, not really doing much. And we're seeing him much more sympathetically than uh, than we do in, in Pearl of Death, where he really is just a monster. Yeah. Would you say that Pearl of Death is the best of these three films? Yeah, I would I would definitely say so. Yeah, me too. Um, the director, uh, Roy William Neal, uh, the director of Pearl of Death, that is, uh, he was sort of the head of the Sherlock Holmes unit at Universal. He was also the producer of these films. And he, I feel like he's somebody who I 
didn't think much of for years because I only knew him as the director of Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, which is a film that I have always loved. It's one of my favorite films. Um, but like, that's all I'd ever heard of. And I just figured like, oh, so he's like, he was just like a one-off guy. Um, you know, not like a James Whale or a Todd Browning or anything like that. But over the course of just the past year, I saw all the Sherlock Holmes movies he did for Universal, and I saw The Black Room, which he did at, uh, at Columbia in 1935, uh, starring Boris Karloff and Boris Karloff as twin brothers. Ah. And that's a really great movie. I, I've i never really uh, heard of this. Yeah, I had only heard of it like in passing. I didn't know much about it, and I just I got this like Boris Karloff... Uh, like icon icons of horror set um and had like most of his columbia films in the 30s and 40s which that's like a part of his career i don't really know much about and uh they're all pretty entertaining but the black room is like it's like a horror masterpiece that nobody really talks about too really much. so you're saying you've discovered a hidden gem yeah well i mean i shouldn't <laughs> i didn't like discover like, right of course people know it's out there <laughs> i mean it's on dvd There's... it wasn't like you know you're like I found this masterpiece in my attic. Yeah, I remember, like, a recent issue of uh, The Dark Side, the British horror magazine. Like, they had, like, a retrospective article about it, which, um, like, that's actually, I didn't read the article. I was just like, oh, you know, they're devoting this whole article to this movie that I don't really know much about. That's what led me to buying that set. And then, like, I watched it and I read that. I'm like, okay, yeah, where the hell has this been all my life? I mean, just the, the premise of Boris Karloff playing off of himself sounds entertaining enough yeah and of course one is an evil twin of course (laughs) but it's a it's a really good movie and it looks great and um uh there was an interview they printed part of it in the book universal horrors with uh dennis hoey the actor dennis hoey's son michael hoey uh he talks about like visiting his father on the set of these roy william neal movies as a child and they were like very sparse sets. The, I mean, the Sherlock Holmes movies were very low budget, you know, because Universal, it was, you know, it was a mini major. There in, in the classic Hollywood era, there was the big five and the little three. Universal was one of the little three. Um, and Roy William Neal just worked wonders with just like placing things in just the right spot and the way he would let the lighting go just to give the impression of like more. Yeah. You're getting more out of less with yeah. his sets. And and D- Dennis Hoey was the actor who played Inspector Lestrade throughout the Holmes series. And he also played basically the same character in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. He's just this inspector who I don't even think they give him a name, so he could have been Lestrade, who just shows mm. up when Lawrence Talbot is in the, uh, the hospital. Well, that really is part of the fun of, of all these movies, is sort of like, because they all can totally in so many ways feel like they're just a part of the same universe and they're just the same characters. He even plays one of the head, like the the head police guy in um, the head police guy. That's (laughs) you know, uh, in she wolf of London. (laughs) So you just imagine like, Oh, inspector Lestrade's been, he's really busy, you know, not just when Holmes is around. Yeah. When Holmes is around, he gets all bumbling and makes all these mistakes. But I, I I liked him in uh, Pearl of death though. And like I said, this is the only one that I've seen. But like, just seeing this movie did make me like interested in going and seeing more because it feels like I just like coming in in the middle of, you know, there's no, you know, there's no bother of setting up like 
oh, this is who Sherlock Holmes is, and this is who Watson is, and this is why they work together, and this is, you know, all of their backstory, and we're not, like, we're not really learning anything new about them. We're just letting them do their thing. Um, and they just... Which I, I mean, liked. And the characters, like, at this point in the series, everybody knew who they were. Yeah. And they just... Because in addition to, you know, the 14 films... Um, there were also like, I think like 200 episodes of the radio series, which was going on at the same time, which is why in 1946, Basil Rathbone was like, no, I'm done. No more Sherlock Holmes. So wait, he, he was doing the radio shows too? Nigel Bruce and Basil Rathbone were also doing the radio show. 200 episodes? And Mary Gordon, who plays Mrs. Hudson, uh, and, and... I think I discussed her briefly as being one of the one of Karis's victims, and I don't even remember which mummy movie. Oh wait, no, she was um she was the sister in the mummy's too. I was just gonna That's say right. she's probably the sister. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she played Mrs. Hudson throughout the film series and also on radio. I don't even remember if she's in Pearl of Death because in some of the movies she'll show up for like two lines. She's and in like, some of them she's, she's like not the, the housemaid, right? Yes. Yeah, she's okay. in Pearl of Death. Okay, yeah. Because uh, she's not in all of them. She doesn't have much to do. She kind of just pops in and is just like, "Now you make sure Sherlock eats his dinner," which is a, which is one of the good things about having like um, actors under contract. Yeah, because it's like we need you to be in all of these because people will get upset if it's not Mary Gordon, but we don't always have stuff for you to do. Yeah, so you have one day of work and yeah. yeah. But... Aside from the creeper. Um, there was another attempt to sort of do a spin-off into a new series from the Sherlock Holmes series. Oh, yeah? And that was The Spider-Woman Strikes Back that I mentioned earlier. Because oh. there is a film, it's just like two films before Pearl of Death, where it's uh, just Sherlock Holmes and the Spider-Woman. And the Spider-Woman is played by Gail Sondergaard, who was the cat in The Bluebird. Oh, no. <laughs> And she was also, uh, we, we mentioned her in the, the 1941, The Black Cat. Um, but yeah, in The Spider-Woman, which that is that is also one of the better uh, of the Sherlock Holmes series. Uh, she plays a very sinister woman in that. And it's like, it's a great character. And you're like, oh, that's cool that all of a sudden there's going to be this like spinoff and we're going to follow that character. And then I yesterday I'm watching The Spider-Woman Strikes Back. And they just have her playing a completely different character who just happens to have something to do with spiders. But the same actress. Same actress. Calling her the spider woman. Yeah. And um, it's weird. It's a weird movie. It's um, clearly very low budget, B-level movie. It's, uh, it's about 58 minutes, just like The Brute Man. Um, but it's... It's more fun than the brute man. It's very campy. I mean, she as an actress, she's a very like over the top villainess. Um, but it's uh, I don't know. It's hard to recommend. But if you're ever in a situation where you're like, okay, I can either watch the brute man or the Spider Woman Strikes Back, I, I would go with Spider Woman Strikes Back. Now, Rondo Hatton also appeared in Spider Woman Strikes Back. What yeah. kind? And you said he played a uh, mute. Yeah, Mario. So what kind of a uh, character is that? He's a he's like the servant yeah, of the Spider Woman. Of the Spider Woman, yeah. Gotcha. So he's like um, a henchman, if you will. He's a little sympathetic in it. He's more sympathetic than as the Hoxton Creeper in mm-hmm. Pearl of Death*, 
Um, and it's weird they, because he actually is a mute in the film. Like it's not just he doesn't have lines; he's a mute. He gets to do some sign language. Now I don't know sign language. <laughs> But I have a feeling that what he's doing with his hands in that movie is not actually <laughs> sign language. Uh, maybe it is. I don't know. Probably not. But that does add to some of the uh, the campy entertainment value of it. But he um, he does a serviceable job. I'll say that for him. Um, so Spider-Woman... So, um, Spider-Woman Strikes Back came out after... Pearl of Death, and then that was followed by House of Horrors. Mm. Um, so House of Horrors, it's it's interesting because like you could be the the three films that you sort of chose here. You could be forgiven to think that like you watch them all back to back, and it feels like it's just the same character in all three movies. Which is why I chose it. It's like. This is sort of like a lesser version of like Karis the Mummy. Like we watch all the Karis movies, and here's all the Creeper movies. Because he might be the same character, but he might not be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, because you know, he gets shot at the end of all of these movies. Well, except for Brute Man, which was his last. Um, he gets shot. He goes down. They say, "Oh, he's dead." I mean, he does get shot in the Brute Man, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but he's not presumed dead, right? Uh, and then at the beginning of House of Horrors, it's like, oh, the, the you know the creeper got away essentially, and we thought that he was dead, but you know he ran and fell into the river or whatever. Yeah, because they mentioned that like, oh, he killed that Dawson woman, which I went back through the brute man. I'm like, was anybody's name Dawson? Okay, no. So this is another woman. So yeah, because there is, and nobody was named Dawson in uh, Pearl of Death. I don't believe so. Yeah, so this is just like. In between Pearl of Death and this, there was some other woman that he killed. Yeah. In uh, his character that he plays in House of Horrors is pretty much the same, but like he's much more of a indiscriminate killer. Where yeah, he, the very first person he murders in House of Horrors is for no reason. Well, she screamed. She screamed, yeah. Of course, she doesn't scream until he goes after her. That, um, the, well, I, it seems like a prostitute because it's a, it's a woman walking around by the waterfront in the middle of the night. And, um, there was actually like a note from the, uh, you know, the Joseph Breen and the production code office saying like, oh, try not to make her seem like a whore. <laughs> they did what they could. I mean, but, um, that actress who just appears in like for that one moment. That's Virginia Christine, who just a couple years earlier played Ananka in The Mummy's Curse. Ah. And she just has, like, just a couple lines there, and she screams and dies. Yeah, there, well, there's a lot of uh, crossover with with The Mummy's Curse in House of Horrors, because um, the, the, char- the, the main character, essentially, in House of Horrors, who is the one who finds the creeper, fishes him out of the river, and then starts using him for his own nefarious purposes to go off and kill his enemies. That actor, what's his name? It's, uh, Martin Koslek. Kosek. Yeah. Koslek. That's right. Uh, he was in, he was also in mummy's curse as the, uh, the German henchman to the, uh, the Egyptian priest, the attempted rapist. Yeah. He was also in she will have London. 
I don't get why. When Universal has Martin Koslek under contract, he's making all these movies. He shows up in these supporting roles in these horror films. I think he's really good. Yeah, I really liked him in House of Why Horror. not say, here's our new horror star? Yeah, right? That's like the most frustrating thing. Is just like, I, I really like the guy. Um... I have no idea why they wouldn't think of him in that light. He even kind of looks like Bela Lugosi. Like, they could have positioned him into a place where, like, he could be the son of Dracula. Yeah, and, like, he had a better grasp on the English language than Lugosi did, which is something that people always kind of like, oh, that's that's why he never made it big after Dracula. That's because he just, he couldn't speak English well. Which, whatever. But this guy, I think he does a, a bang-up job. Yeah. I, I, just, I don't get it, and... I'm curious, um, it's been said that one of the reasons why, uh, James Whale had such a bad relationship with, like, the new Universal, like, the post-1936 Universal, was because he was so open about his homosexuality, and they didn't like that, and I'm wondering if that's what happened with Martin, uh, Martin Koslek, because he was openly homosexual, and, uh, he even, um... He appeared in one of the Sherlock Holmes films, Pursuit to Algiers, and he actually got um, his male lover, Leslie Vincent, uh, a role in the film. So, I mean, somebody liked him somewhere, but I guess it's not enough to uh, let him be the new king of horror. Take center stage. Yeah. Um, They needed, like... I I don't know what they were looking for. They weren't looking for Martin Koslek. They were looking for monstrosity apparently yeah i wonder if it was the um the thickness like the <laughs> like when you think of like lon cheney jr he's got that girth yeah he's got that he's got that girth they weren't really looking for the live uh well no because john carradine you know they had him in there as dracula very gaunt. And so i don't know so uh when it's weird, cause, of... cause, like jack pierce was still working there right yeah i saw that he was credited for makeup for the brute man i yeah. don't know if he was credited for these other ones but i'm like you know you can make someone look like rondo hatton yeah and actually have like a, a better actor yeah well that's like ralph morgan and the monster maker at prc you know they they put stuff on his face to make him look like he had uh acromegaly yeah yeah i don't know so i he uh Martin Koslek should have been a horror star, and for some reason, he wasn't. But he gave a lot of great supporting performances. Um, as did, in this film, Alan Napier. Yeah, who's most famous for portraying Alfred on the uh, the 60s Batman show with Adam West. He's playing a very different kind of character in this, which was kind of cool for me to see. Because, you know, he's always so... He's just like the lovable, grandfatherly, like, you know... Oh, I'm sorry, sir. The Master Wayne is out at the moment. Come on, take a message. Blah blah blah. And he's always got that smile on his face. And in this, he has this sort of like nasty edge to it. Yeah, he's uh, the acid-tongued art critic. He's like, um, he's sort of like a takeoff on uh, um, Clifton Webb's fruity performance as Waldo Lidecker in Otto Preminger's Lore a couple years earlier. It's o- it's almost like an impression of that performance, but uh, but it's still good on its own. Like I don't want to, I don't want to knock it. I think Alan Napier does a bang up job in this film. Yeah. I think this is the only other thing that I've seen him in, unless there's some 
supporting role in something else that I didn't even realize it was him. He did a few films uh, with the Val Luton unit over at RKO at this time. He, um, I don't remember which film exactly. I, I definitely remember he was in Cat People. He has a very small role in it. Mm, yeah, I've never seen Cat People. That's definitely on my need-to-watch list. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. Yeah, he, uh, I don't know, his his character's sexuality, I just, I don't know, he strikes me as a little ambiguous in this film. Yeah, I don't really see that because there's that whole sequence where the 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 woman art critic comes to him and he's sort of like hitting on her and she's like sort of playing with him and saying like oh yeah blah 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 and he asks like oh can i take you out to dinner and she's like sure she gives him a look and then he she leaves and then there's this look on his face like oh yeah I'm totally gonna get me some of that yeah it could just be his uh, his snooty demeanor falling into like the homosexual stereotypes i guess he could have just been uh inviting her out on a pretense of dinner when really he was just gonna like he's gonna humiliate her because he like because she goes back and says like you know oh yeah I, I wrapped him around my finger like you know i was totally letting him do this to me yeah so maybe he was realizing that was her game maybe he was trying to play her be like you know and that look of like oh yeah it's more of like a oh i'm gonna humiliate you so bad I'm gonna I'm gonna spin I'm gonna turn the tables on you. There's this whole other game that's being played here that isn't even a part of this movie, really. No, uh, but it's a very entertaining part of the movie. There there are all these like little supporting characters which are really kind of interesting in in this movie. Where like there's that that female art critic. Oh, I forget her name. Um, the character's name. The like the main uh, the main uh, the lead actress of the movie. Yeah. Uh, the character name was Joan Medford. And while the film was being shot. Um, it's weird. There's no mention of this in the Universal Horrors book, which is like my main reference for Universal Horror films, but in a review of the film in one of John Stanley's Creature Features books, um, he mentions the shooting title as Joan Medford is Missing. Hmm. Which, uh, it does make a little more sense than the title of the first draft of the script, which was Murder Mansion. But it's still a, a weird title for this movie. Joan Medford is missing. Yeah, which I mean, she's not really missing at all. Well, for the last, for the for, last, there's like three or four minutes. minutes in the movie where like, people hey, are like, "Where is she?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You might say Joan Med- Joan is missing. Um, yeah, her character has this, um, I don't know, assistant guy who like because she works <laughs> at this uh, this press at this like newspaper where she does the art column, and there's like a an assistant newsboy. He's like the copy boy or something. Yeah, who's like six foot two or something. He's just this giant guy. And he pokes his head into this movie for like two seconds on two different occasions. And it's like the movie suddenly becomes about him. Where we're like, we're getting he's a close-up of him. the worst day ever. Yeah, and he's just like, oh man, you're giving me more work to do. Like, this sucks. I hate being in this movie. And then he just sulks out. And it's just like, what? Like, what is that about? It's like the coroner in the early scene who just gets way too excited when he finds out the creeper might be back. He's like, oh, if the creeper is coming back, I might be getting some overtime in. And <laughs> yeah. It's like, what is that? Everybody has their own story going on, you know? Yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of stuff going I mean, it's it's um, it helps build the, the world of the film. Yeah. And you they... realize that <laughs> these people have lives. Yes. It, makes, it makes their deaths all the more tragic. Like, uh... even though, unfortunately, those characters don't die. Yeah, unfortunately, the, the um, now I'm spacing on her name, the, the model, 
Stella. Stella, yeah. She was the one that that I was really upset with, for sure. Yeah, Stella's death is probably like uh, from an emotional standpoint, um, like one of the best parts of this movie. I and guess aside from uh, Marcel's death at the very end. Well, the cat. Because the cat comes up. Yeah. And sort of nuzzles against him, trying to wake him up, and then the cat does this sort of like heartbreakingly like sort of like half slump next to him yeah. like it's it, it like you can tell the cat is like devastated that her or the cat's name was pietro pietro so it's yeah it's a guy you know the cat's like my master is dead it's really sad and then the and then the other characters go yuck it up in the car afterwards <laughs> like well they don't care that was fun right that's uh now that all the abnormalities have been removed <laughs> from our like clean-cut 40s society, everything can move along just perfectly. Yeah, how about a little snog there, lady? Yeah. Even the, um, I mean, the snooty art critic is dead, and then there's the other art critic in, with that flashy bathrobe who helps with the, uh, the failed setup. Um, you know, there's something, I'm getting a homosexual vibe from him. Man, your gaydar but, um, is just off the charts today, isn't it? Well, I i mean, you have, like, the there's that the relationship between Marcel Delange <laughs> and the Creeper. Uh, yeah, he's, like, you know, he's, like, bringing him breakfast in bed and stuff. That's, you know, there's some... He, and he talks about how he's his... Uh, he's essentially his muse. The Creeper is his muse. Yeah, it's, like, Igor and Frankenstein in, uh, in Son of Frankenstein, and Igor is, like, he does things for me <laughs> right that's the least lugosi impression of lugosi ever <laughs> um but yeah and like there's i mean that the relationship between those two is can be viewed as like this abnormal relationship and there's like you know they're at this like dark creepy setting of his studio and there's this great dichotomy going on between you know marcel's studio where he's got the creeper as his model and then mark or whatever the hell his name is his studio yeah, the, the other guy the clean cut guy yeah from, who the hell from cares the mummy's about that guy? curse or the mummy's ghost i mean yeah and like he's got stella as his model and it's just like you know this this like beautiful woman uh, in like this bright kind of upscale space, and he's yeah. wearing fancy clothes. And meanwhile, Marcel is like scraping. He can't scrape two pennies together. He's like living on living in candlelight, and you know, with eating just like just bread and cheese. And yeah, and then like getting back to like you know Stella's death. It's like that moment is like when these two worlds, which really should never be intersecting suddenly come face to face you've got marcel's model and mark's model just like looking each other in in the eye and then it ends tragically mm -hmm. it's just this confrontation between class mm, yeah and and it's also interesting is like that uh that other snooty uh bathrobe wearing art critic you know the police come to him and say like you know we we think mark is the guy who is the killer so we need you to set up a uh, bad review for him and the worst insult that he could think of to hurl at him is to compare him to this lower class seemingly crazy person yeah and then and that and that really sets him off because he goes to that guy and like 
actually tries to strangle him. Yeah, it's so weird because it's like this is supposed to be our hero. This uh, guy we've been calling him Mark. His name is Steve. <laughs> okay, um, yeah. but who the hell cares? He's just yeah. this interchangeable. He might as well just be a Mark. Yeah, he's Mark. <laughs> no, all right, Steve. But um, so he's insane. Yeah, he attacks this guy. He like if the cops hadn't come in, do you think he would have murdered him? I mean, possibly. I mean, like, you know, he, he had his back to him. The the art critic had his back to him, and he just lunged at him with his hands around his neck. He said, like, why I ought to wring your neck? And, you know, the, there's this thing in a lot of 40s movies that has this sort of, where, like, the lead characters have this sort of, like, flippant kind of, like, snarky, cynical attitude about everything, mm. where they just are, like, cooler than everybody else, and there's like, well, you know, I'm, I guess I'll just sit here twiddling my thumbs then, eh, and blah, blah, blah. And most of the time, it's like, it's okay. In this movie, it almost felt insufferable at times. Like, these two lead characters, just having this, like, so laissez-faire attitude about everything. I was just kind of like, what the what the hell are you doing over here? Cause, and then, especially when he's over there, and he's like, why, well, I ought to wring your neck, and he's going to strangle him, and then the cops come out, and he's like, oh, well, this is all just a big misunderstanding. You can't think that this means I killed him, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just like, like... why wouldn't they think Yeah, like, you're, like... <laughs> you're not gonna get any more... You know, this doesn't move your needle at all. Like, you're not gonna get any more emotional. And, like, you just imagine, like, when, you know, Marcel has finally had enough, his response is he's going to go commit suicide. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the Creeper's appearance pretty much saves his life. It's, I mean, this is 1946, which is the same year It's a Wonderful Life came out. That's what I was just thinking of, yeah. And so it's basically, like, the Creeper is his Clarence the Angel. He yeah. just sees him down in the water, and he's like, oh, I can't kill myself, I have to help this person. It's like the exact same thing. Can that be a coincidence? I don't know. But anyway, so... Uh, yeah, it, it is like oddly similar. Yeah, but like Marcel's first response to like... Ye- well, not first response, but for years of being beaten down by these like harsh criticisms, the only reason he resorts to murder is because after trying to kill himself, he finds this other person, and that puts the idea in his head. This Steve guy... Yeah, he gets he, one bad review and he goes off the handle. Yeah, it's like, of course we're going to be on Marcel's side more than his. Fuck that Steve guy. Yeah, seriously. He's terrible. Yeah, and uh, and his girlfriend with the tricky hat and <laughs> very sheer nylon. <laughs> yeah. uh, she does have some intense hats in this movie. Yeah, and she's, and she's just awful too. Because she just like, you know, and, and it's that like blase faire attitude that's like, that just allows her to just come in when the police are interrogating about this murder, where she was literally there like five minutes before the murder took place, and she's just like lying about where Steve was, just because it's fun for her to sort of just be like, "I can get away with anything. Nothing matters to me. Like, I, you know, like I'm never going to be considered to be a, a suspect in anything because I'm a beautiful woman, and like, you know, it's, it's just like this snobbish attitude. It's like." Count Dracula walking down the street after killing the flower girl, and the police are running right past him. They wouldn't even think, like, why would they think it was, was him? It was probably just some poor person. Yeah. Like Marcel. Like Marcel. Lange. Yeah, exactly. Are you saying blase fair? I actually, oh, I said, uh, I said laissez faire earlier, and then I said blase fair. Okay. And I realized when I said it that it was wrong. All right. <laughs> so I apologize. <laughs> Excuse my French. <laughs> um,. The cop is an odd character also in this movie. Uh, like, 
it's weird that <laughs> he just he just really wants to have sex with Stella. Oh yeah, yeah. He's just like he's wanting it hard. And like that is like first and foremost his mission. Like, and every now and then he's like, oh yeah, there is this. There's murder this murder thing happening, but then it's like you know he's on the phone, being like, is Stella there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, but like when he finds her dead, like it does finally like just he immediately magically just goes and just yeah he's like whoa this just got real <laughs> yeah so it's like if stella had never existed would he have just like figured everything out no he, he would no because he was going he was there to pick her up to go to dinner right but i mean she hadn't been distracting him like i feel like once he oh, figures yeah, okay, it out I he takes you, care of everything you. so quickly he just goes yeah there, yeah yeah got that one bullet through the window which that it's kind of an anticlimactic death for the creeper which is par for the course <laughs> but i mean like that that is an interesting image of that hole in the window where the bullet had passed through hmm. um i don't know cops are weird like uh yes we'll see in the brute man <laughs> yeah well yeah one last thing that that i just sort of stuck in my mind when you were talking about the relationship between uh the creeper and marcel and how there's this sort of like, I don't know, maybe there's an underlying uh, tone there. But uh, yeah, I was just thinking about like the, the sculpture that Marcel had originally created that he was going to sell and was told that it was awful. And in a fit of passion, he destroys that sculpture. That sculpture was of a female form. It was like a naked female form. It was sort of like, it was a deformed body, but it was of a woman and he smashes it and then he goes to kill himself and he sees uh, Rondo Hatton and then suddenly he's like going to sculpt this thing. And then when, uh, when the insufferable art critic woman comes to him, she's like, oh, what do you got under the sheet? And he's like, oh no, this is my best work. You know, I've never done anything like it, but it, it's like this man. You know, he's like, oh, I've, uh, nev yeah. I've never done anything like this, you know? Yeah. I like that she actually seems to appreciate Marcel's art to yeah. a degree. Yeah. But she just seems to appreciate everybody's art. But she's taking advantage of him because she's, yeah. like, literally stealing sketches off of his work table. Yeah. And not in a way of, like, you know, she she's not really suspecting him of murder at that point in time. Like, it would be more understandable if she was, like, thinking, like, oh... I think this is the guy that is really responsible and I'm going to prove it. But she doesn't even realize that like, cause she's seeing this, this, uh, sketch of, of the brute man or of the creeper. And she's not putting the pieces together. That that's the creeper until later on when it's like, Oh, she's, she has that moment of like, Oh, I didn't realize that this is who this is that all the police. Yeah. Are the dots are connected for her. Yeah. So it's weird because she's just like, okay, yeah, I'm just going to steal some of your art and print it in the newspaper anyway. I like when the guy writes the note to her about like, he, he, he's like writing this note to her like uh, above the sketch and he's like, why not identify this as a picture of the creeper? Mm -hmm. And like he's writing it and he's saying it out loud as he's writing it, which makes sense for like us, the audience. Yeah. Instead of like showing us him writing. But there's this other guy there mm -hmm. who is like, you know, he can hear him speaking, but he's also, like, he looks looking directly over. at the paper. <laughs> yeah, he's looking over his shoulder. And it's like, I don't, it's weird. It's like, I want to see where this goes. <laughs> yeah. 
is he writing what he's saying? Um, it's another one of those odd little supporting yeah. bits. So anyways, that's House of Horrors. We should probably move on to The Brute Man. I would like to say one last thing about House of Horrors. Okay. Shooting for House of Horrors started on Tuesday, September 11th. <laughs> that just... That just amuses me. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, how many Tuesday, September 11ths have there been? I'm not sure. But, I mean, uh, this How is... common is it for September 11th to fall on a Tuesday? I would think it would happen every, what, like six or seven years? Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um... Anyway, so The Brute Man, which would you... Okay, so The Brute Man, would you say that this is Rondo Hatton's most famous movie? No. What would you think is, uh, is he's most famous for? Oh, what he is most famous for? Yeah. Like, which movie he's most famous for, or what he yeah, is what, most famous for? Yeah, what movie for? he's most famous okay, for. because he himself is probably most famous for the Rondo Awards that they give out every year. Um... But as far as movies go, I would say House of Horrors because for a long time that was the most available. I feel like I heard of Brute Man because of Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand. Okay, that makes sense. And I've never seen that episode, but I, you know, it's in the list of the movies mm. that they've done, and so I was familiar with that. Yeah, so it's like I mean, the Brute Man is it's a universal horror film, but it's not a universal horror film. So, like, in the early 90s when they were doing, like, the reissued on VHS, like, those editions, like, that was not part of that because it's not technically a universal film. So, I never really heard of it until a long time later. Why is it not technically a universal film? Well, there are varying theories as to why this happened, but, uh, so Universal produced the film... And instead of distributing it themselves, as was their custom, they sold it to PRC. And PRC distributed it. Um, Producers Releasing Corporation, by the way. They were, along with Monogram and Republic, like, you know, the... They were, like, the main, like, Poverty Row studios of that era. Um, so, so they, essentially, they had the distribution rights uh, extending into home video or had the movies fallen into public domain i think pretty much every prc movie is in the public domain now also monogram and republic like they're just though all like the old horror movies you can find like on youtube or that play on like like well around here tva or look tv like they just you know they're those movies yeah (laughs) like nobody bothered to like go and fill out whatever paperwork and uh I don't know. Um, but yeah, so they are... The Brute Man is in the public domain. And, um, you know, some people have said, like, well, Universal was starting to feel weird about exploiting Rondo Hatton. And that's why, you know, they thought the Brute Man was in too poor of taste. And so they got rid of it. But, I mean, the Brute Man and House of Horrors both came out after Rondo Hatton's death. And just within, you know, months of each other. Um, but this was also the time when Universal was in the middle of their merger with International, and they became Universal International, and they stayed that way throughout the 50s. Um, you know, they were trying to turn away from B-movies, mm. and they were just trying to make, you know, like, bigger movies, which... 
that didn't go well for them and it never had it's because like in the early 30s you know when junior lemley was in charge he tried to do that and it didn't work out and then a few years later he tried to do it again and they ended up losing the company and then 10 years later they tried doing it again and it didn't work out it's just one of those lessons people don't learn it's like well you need the big ones and the small ones and you got to try to find a balance like at one point in the late 40s they had a new rule where it's like okay all of our features have to be at least 70 minutes long yeah that which i think 58 minutes is more than enough of the brute man yeah as i said before um a lot of these movies are mercifully an hour long yeah and brute man definitely <laughs> falls into that category uh, I think maybe one of the other reasons why they didn't distribute it is, just, I mean, compared to House of Horrors, it's just, I mean, House of Horrors is just a better movie. Mm. And they're um, both the same director. Uh, Jean Yarbrough. Jean Yarbrough. Also the director of The Devil Bat, which I really enjoy. Which was actually made for PRC with Bela Lugosi in 1940. And uh, didn't he also direct She Wolf of London? Yep. Brute yeah. Man is an odd film. It, uh, can you think of a movie that came out before The Brute Man, which could be called a prequel? Um, there's a film a couple of years later that people often refer to as the first prequel. I think it's called Another Part of the Forest. It's like a prequel to Little Foxes. And this is, you know, this is, this beats this, or this beats that by like two years. And you, you say that this is a prequel because this shows the origin of the Creeper. Yeah. Hal Moffat. Hal Mo- yeah, He's we, given the we weird name, name Hal Moffat. Hal Moffat. Um, and because of, his, uh, because of the open-ended nature of the end of the movie, where he's not shot and left for dead. He's just... He's whisked away unceremoniously. Anticlimactically. <laughs> we like, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and then, then he's like, oh, <laughs> they carry him away. Yeah. Before we even get a look to see how he's reacting to it. And then there's no like, you know, end moment of him like in a police cell or something or, you know, swearing that he'll get out or whatever. You know, it's just like none of that. No, it's just, yeah, he's, he's in jail now, I yeah. guess. I imagine he escapes, kills some woman named Dawson. And then, um... I mean, this happens a lot with, you know, Hollywood studio movies of that era where they reuse sets and stuff. But, like, where he washes up in House of Horrors, I never noticed this until last night. That is the same set as where he is living in The Brute Man. That's right. Yeah, so it's almost like he tried to, like, swim back to where he was staying before, like that little hovel there. That's right. And Marcel intercepts him and brings him home. So, like, there is no question that these, uh, they have to be in the same continuity here. And it makes sense. The Brute Man takes place before House of Horrors. And when do you think Pearl of Death would fall into this? Um, it could be years later. I don't know because he would have to have time to establish himself as the Hoxton Creeper. Right. Like he had to live in Hoxton for a certain amount of time to be known as the Hoxton Creeper. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I would say he survives the uh, the gunshot at the end of House of Horrors, and then moves to London and creeps around Hoxton. 
And if you so really, you should watch these movies in in reverse order. Okay. Watch Brute Man first, then House of Horrors, then Pearl of Death, because what would be great is like the reveal of him at the end of Pearl of Death is almost like the reveal of like oh the creeper's back you know yeah, it's it, like, oh it's that creeper yeah <laughs> if it's, <for> s- <laughs> it's hal moffat <laughs> if for some reason i'm ever in a situation where somebody's like oh my god tim can you show me the creeper movies yeah i gotta show that's Brute how Man, i'll do house it. of horrors pearl of death and what's great about that is uh often when you watch series like this you know they as you go on there's diminishing returns but you start low and end high yeah it yeah because it, that that is the order of uh <laughs> yeah brute man is the worst then house of horrors then pearl of death brute man is the shortest of these films it definitely feels the longest there is yeah, so much crazy. padding. Like you mentioned earlier um, about him climbing the fire escape multiple times. Yeah, it's like by the by the end of the movie, we're seeing him climb that fire escape again. And I'm just like, man, we've already seen this. And it just goes on for like at least a minute. Like a minute of this 58-minute runtime is him climbing that fire escape. And it's just like, we've already seen him do it. We know that that's how he gets into that room. Like, that's established. And my thinking was like, well, I guess they're trying to build tension, but like, you know, there wasn't really much tension to build. It was more tense once he's actually in the house and he's creeping up behind uh, this woman who's playing piano and she's blind. And up until this point, she's been his sort of like only friend in the world. And uh, um, he's he sort of, I guess you could say sort of falls in love with her. It's like Frankenstein and the Hermit and Bride of Frankenstein. It is, yeah, exactly. And uh, but then it's sort of she gets interrogated by the police and she spills the beans on who he is and and or and she finds out that he is this uh, this this killer. And then all the newspaper headlines say like you know oh blind woman <laughs> tell us all about creeper and then he is like oh no she's betrayed me. One great um, thing I did like, if you're looking for something great in this movie. I highly recommend if you watch The Brute Man, every time it shows newspapers, hit pause and actually read all of the newspaper stories. They're so oddly cut and pasted from various <laughs> things. And it's like, it's it's a very odd world in which these people are living if this is what's happening. <laughs> like nothing is making sense in that newspaper aside from that the main headlines. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, the Brute Man's story is essentially like the Creepers just... I mean, the movie starts and it's like, the Creepers at it again, essentially. Mm. He's like running rampant and uh, he is... Essentially, it's it's sort of a revenge story. He's seeking revenge on his this group of friends that he used to have in college. And uh, through... He, he had fallen in love with this this woman before and this is before he's disfigured he was this football star and he fell in love with this woman who was dating his best friend and roommate and uh and so his his roommate roommate, like stole like if you can steal a person like stole her from him sort of that's not how i saw it because it was like they were already like in love it sounded like and here comes hal moffat and he's like you know trying to get in between them. And there's, there's sort of like a rivalry there where they're each trying oh, to one-up Oh, that's right. Yes, because Hal tricks 
her or something and takes her on a ride going somewhere or something like that. Yeah, like there was another like, girl who oh, liked Hal. Yeah, like because there was okay. another girl who liked Hal, and he liked Virginia. And this is all probably really boring to anybody who hasn't seen this movie, because <laughs> you probably don't know what the heck I'm talking about. Um, it's like, and there the fact that there is another girl that likes him, but he's like, no, I don't want that girl. I want this girl. Yeah, and then he ends up. She's like the nobody first one wa- who nobody wants him. Yeah, and she's the first one who he kills. Yeah, which what he the shows fuck? up to her and he's like, "It's me, Hal." She's like, "Hal," and she screams. And then I guess that's all that that it takes to set off the creeper. <laughs> and then he just goes around breaking spines. Um. So he's out seeking revenge because, through the machinations of his roommate to woo Virginia. He winds up in a uh, chemical accident, uh, which disfigures him. And the scene in which we get all this backstory is really kind of funny because the police have investigated and they sort of have the suspicions that, like, okay, the creeper is this guy, uh, Hal Moffat. And so they go to his friends and they're like, oh, we, we think the killer is Hal. And they're like, what? No, it couldn't be Hal. Like, when's the last time you saw Hal? And it's like, well, the last time I saw Hal, he was horribly disfigured. He had a raging temper. And he, he like, you know, he, I was afraid for my life. But it couldn't be Hal. Oh, but it's, it's so weird that, like, all right, so here is this real-life person, Rondo Hatton. And he looks the way he looks for whatever reasons. And this film devises a backstory in which this normal-looking guy sort of brings it upon himself. He deserves to look like this because of his own, like, temper. Because he was a monster on the inside and he became a monster on the outside. Yeah, and, like, it, like, harkens back to, like, in the uh, Lugosi Karloff, The Raven, where Karloff's character says, like, uh, maybe if a person looks ugly, he does ugly things. I don't know, it's, it's really hard to take in this movie where it's like, Rondo Hatton is playing a guy who looks like Rondo Hatton. Yeah. And, I mean, by all accounts, Rondo Hatton in his youth was, like, a great-looking guy, and he was he was very athletic. You know, he was a football player. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Um, and just a, over the years, I mean, by the time he died in 1946, he was 51 years old. Yeah. So over the course of his life, he just grew to look like that yeah and i mean it's said that you know his specific case was like a result of like mustard gas in world war one but i mean traditionally acromegaly doesn't actually like start to affect people until they hit middle age really which is terrifying that is terrifying (laughs) one of us could have it right now and we just don't know yeah what is middle age one of you listening um, well, it's kind of changed over the years because, you know, middle-aged is, implies, you know, the middle of your life expectancy. But I feel like we're, our life expectancy is a bit longer now. Okay. I like to think anyways. <laughs> okay, because I'm not going to say this on mic. <laughs> I, I mean, middle age is like, what, like 40? Okay. Yeah, we'll go with 40. Anyway, um, <clears throat> the brute man. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the police in this film are very interesting. <laughs> you got uh, Donald McBride, 
as the... I don't even remember everybody's title. The guy, he has the desk. Right. And he's the older fellow, Donald McBride. I know yeah. him mostly from the Marx Brothers movie Room Service, which um, it's not usually thought of as one of their best. I love it because I, th- I think just because it was my first Marx Brothers movie that I watched a lot mm. when I was very young. And after watching The Brute Man again the other day, I immediately put on Room Service, just kind of like get the taste out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Because the um, Brute Man, literally the last thing we see in the Brute Man, which is is it's just upsetting because it's like this is Rondo Hatton's final movie because he died. Yeah. And the, the way that it, this movie ends is just like the police jump out of nowhere. They just grab him and just whisk him off screen without you even getting a – before you blink and you miss it. And he's just gone. And the movie ends with – the the police chief Donald McBride breaking the fourth wall and looking at you at the audience and what does he say? Uh, well, there goes my pigeon or something or just lost my pigeon, <laughs> and then like sprays a bunch of a deck of cards into the air. You almost expect him to go whoo. Yeah, it's like like what what just happened? Like <laughs> yeah, his his partner <laughs> runs off with the beautiful blind woman. And I guess they're going to do something together. Yeah, the partner who is not even a character in this movie. Yeah, well, he, he plays cards with him. He plays cards with, yeah, but it's just like, like we, we don't even know. We, he doesn't have a name. <laughs> we only see him, like, from afar and maybe a third quarter sort of, you know, profile view or something. And like, and then at the end, it's like, you know, I don't know why. It's like to set up, like, oh, the, the blind woman has found a nice man now. Yeah, we need to know what happens to the sexy hunchback from House of Dracula at the end of this movie. Let's say that was Jane Addams. <laughs> ah. Yeah, and he's just like, I'll take you home. <laughs> kind of <sighs> gives like a wink-wink to the police captain. It's so weird. She was my favorite <laughs> thing about the movie. The blind woman. Mm. Why? She's pretty. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know if, like... I mean, there's not a lot of, like, if somebody was to say, oh, what's your favorite thing about the Brute Man, <laughs> you could say something that's not necessarily good. And so it's like, well, it wasn't good, but it was still my favorite part. Like, right. I did, like did you think she actually gave a good performance and stuff? Yeah, just... she she did well. Okay. Especially in these scenes with, uh, with Rondo Hatton, where, like, he has the most dialogue with her. And, you know, she's going to touch his face because she's blind, and he's like, no, don't do that. And she has to act like, you know, she, she, I mean, she's really trying to pull it out of him. You know what I mean? And he's just so stone-faced and it, not really, he just, he's basically just reading his lines. In an interview years later, uh, she said that he was really, um, this sounds harsh the way I'm saying it, but like, she did, I don't think she meant it in a harsh way. She said he was pathetic to work with, but mm. not pathetic, like, oh, that pathetic actor, more pathetic and like this poor man is in constant pain and he's really trying hard, but he right, can't do right. it. She pitied um, him. Yeah. Um, and I, I, that I read that, uh, that excerpt from the interview in that universal horrors book, I keep mentioning. And then they in turn go on to say like, well, she doesn't do that great of a job in this either, but I think she does a pretty good job. I think the best part of it for her character is, one of the worst parts for his character when the police come in and just whisk him away. Yeah. And she's sitting there at the piano and like, she can sense that he's behind her 
but because it's a whole it's a setup and everything she has to pretend that she doesn't know he's behind her and then they take him and like, and you she has this look where yeah. she's like i did the right thing but i still betrayed him feel bad about it and, yeah. and and it's nice because it's just like no words are even exchanged or even said in that scene i think between mm. anybody unless the police captain said something to her but i think it's just all it's just all played silent and yeah, as soon as the police come out, she just stops playing piano, and it's like she just knows that, you know, it's that he's doomed to a pretty horrible existence now, and uh, she is responsible, but yeah, she plays all of that, and yeah, she does a good job. What do you think of her student? Oh yeah, who's like <laughs> the boogie? I want to play the boogie woogie music, and the mother's like, "Well, I never." Yeah, so the blind woman uh, is a uh, piano teacher to young children, and and there's this one scene where there's a young girl who's playing, who's you know at her lesson, and her mother's there, and yeah, she gets all excited about wanting to play boogie woogie music, and the mother is like shocked by this. Shocked, I say. She says she gets it from her father, who's blowing that trumpet in that swing band or whatever you know <laughs> it's like ah oh, it's so it's so quaint yeah it's uh it, i don't know <laughs> i just imagine them writing the movie thinking like oh my god this is hilarious people are gonna love this scene <laughs> This little girl's gonna be a star. Like I don't, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> like, what are you thinking when you are writing that? <sighs> yeah, I don't know. So, yeah, this was uh, it was this was a sad end for the creeper and kind of a sad end for Universal Horror. Yeah. Um. It had a uh, like a slight comeback a couple of years later. You know when. They became Universal International after this. Um, Abbott and Costello had been on the wane for a couple of years, and, uh, you know, the monsters were basically done. And they all came back together big in 48 with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. But then... Sort of a one last hurrah. Yeah, because then, I mean, they, they had a few more Abbott and Costello meet dot 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 movies after that. Um, but their popularity began to decline and the monsters were just people didn't seem to be interested in following any new adventures of the monsters at that point there were uh throughout this period there were a lot of reissues like theatrical re-releases of the universal horror films people were still going to see the old ones they just weren't making any new ones mm -hmm. well by, by the time you get to the end of the 40s and into the 50s i mean pop culture in general was really shifting because we had just gone through you know world war Two, and with the atomic bomb suddenly everything there was a there was a shift to science fiction type stories mm. you know and uh, even like in, you know in like in like comic books you know there was the huge golden age of, of superheroes that that boomed in the in the early 40s and by the end of the decade that was pretty much done everyone had moved on to you know 
UFOs and aliens and spacemen, Martians. Um, and then when you get into the 50s, that's where the horror genre really kind of goes into that. Yeah, some of the biggest, like, when I think of horror films of the 50s, some of the ones I think of, I mean, The Thing from Another World, that's clearly a science fiction film. Yeah. And um, Them. Them. And Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. Like, these are great horror films, but they're definitely great science fiction films. Yeah. Gone are the, the gothic castles and, uh, you know, ancient tombs. And they were still, you know, they were out there. They were doing them. They just weren't, like, huge hits. Um until, you know, like the Hammer films started to come over from England in the late 50s. Yeah, and the, so it, it, Hammer was a company in the in in the UK and they started basically remaking all of the classic universal films like Dracula, The Mummy, Frankenstein, and they took off into their own franchises. And uh that's where, you know, I mean Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee became stars. And th- those are interesting to watch when in comparing them to the Universal stuff because, you know, suddenly it you've got, you know, it's in color and it's, you know, there's lots of blood and it just feels like very, uh, you know, shocking compared to the, the very low-key, subdued nature of, of, uh, of the earlier stuff. And I, I feel like I've barely dipped my toe into the water as far as Hammer horror films go. Um, growing up, the Universal ones were just always more readily available. They were just on TV often, and I was like buying all the VHS tapes, or well, I should say my parents were buying them for me when I was little. The Hammer ones I would always hear about, but I didn't see any of them until like maybe the end of high school and uh like it's only been like in the past like two or three years and i've been really trying to catch up with those i think it's they they really need to straighten their their stuff out because it's like trying to if you're trying to like collect the those movies or trying to you know get them on dvd or blu-ray or whatever it's kind of just a scatter shot like yeah. there, there is no like like oh here's the hammer dracula collection yeah, I have a Hammer collection on Blu-ray. It's yeah. eight movies, and they're just all from all over. There's one Dracula movie, one Frankenstein movie, and then the rest of them are all like just from different things. There's they're, they're not really following any like franchise in there. Yeah, know, things it's like that. It's kind of irritating. <laughs> yeah, because I, 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 you know, I'd love to uh, just sit down and and watch all of the Christopher Lee Dracula movies, you know, but like they, you know, they're not available on any of the streaming services to, to get them on dvd and blu-ray you gotta like go to all these different sources and i just haven't done it yet kind of annoying i've but i've seen a a couple of the of the draculas and a couple of the frankensteins i think at this point all the dracula and frankenstein films hammer made are available they're just inconvenient like you said yeah, like they're all yeah. kind of separate and yeah um but Universal kind of the the Universal horror films they kind of wound up with another icon in the fifties that is often lumped in 
with everybody else. And if you're sort of wondering why we haven't mentioned this particular monster, because, you know, you see the, the Universal Monster branding a lot of places, and you'll see your Draculas, your Frankenstein, your Mummy, your Invisible Man, your Wolfman, and oftentimes the Gill Man, yeah. Creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, and I like those movies. And, yeah, you know, especially the first one is... Uh, is really entertaining and i love the the underwater photography and everything and the gill man just looks awesome yeah. and um, i love the um like the evolution of the character throughout the trilogy and like the way it ends i think it actually uh oh there's actually some like development in there yeah but he often gets lumped in with all of those other monsters um and so you know i, I remember when i found out that like the creature from the black lagoon didn't come about until what like a decade after eight years after the brute man yeah eight years after the brute man um they sort of had this uh this mini resurgence where they they made three creature from the black lagoon films um but we didn't lump that in with with this uh discussion about the classic universal horror because it really isn't a part of that original cycle of films and it's like i mean we also like we went right into the sound era and didn't really talk about you know phantom of the opera yeah 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 we skipped over a lot there i mean there are i mean how many would you sort of consider how many films are there in the sort of official canon of universal horror films oh man just a rough estimate a rough estimate i'd say 30 something I don't know, because I got, I mean, again, one of the main reference books that I've been using for this is Universal Horrors, and, like, a lot of the movies that they include in the book, I mean, looking at the table of contents, first of all, they include all of the Sherlock Holmes series, and mm. only a handful and, of those I would really call that's horror. that's debatable, yeah. Yeah, like, um, The Scarlet Claw, that's a horror movie, and, you know, Pearl of Death, it's got the creeper, but, I mean, as you know, there's also, there's a lot of mysteries in here, and they include, like, some of the, like, Abbott and Costello movies, like, before Meet Frankenstein, like, Hold That Ghost, which, you know, it's like a haunted house comedy. Right. Um, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, genre is tricky anyway. Yeah. Because then there's all the Inner Sanctum movies, which, they're murder mysteries, but then that gets back to our discussion of the Jalo. It's like, well, are they horror movies, or are they just mysteries, or... Yeah, and, like, a lot of, like, Alfred Hitchcock's movies kind of line in there where it's like you know hitchcock is like a master of horror but like you look at most of his movies and they're not really like horror movies there are a lot of thrillers and, and mystery films and like suspense because yeah, like, you could like if you think of hitchcock in that way as like a master of horror well then there should be two universal horror movies credited to hitchcock there should be saboteur and shadow of a doubt because they were made for universal in the early 40s mm. And Saboteur, actually, I mean, that's definitely not a horror movie. <laughs> no, I was not, not. But, so you know, so. he does, like, hang out with a blind hermit in the woods. Oh, yeah, there you go. And Otto Kruger from Dracula's Daughter is in there as a villain. And um, Shadow of a Doubt is an interesting case, because I feel like that, you could say that that's a horror movie. I feel it is a horror movie. I feel like that might be Hitchcock's most disturbing film. When you start to peel the layers of the onion that is that family, it's, it's yeah. just it's horrific it's a it's like living coming to realize that you're living with a serial killer essentially yeah and like all the creepy like sexual stuff lurking just below the surface there that 
Yeah. Every time I watch it, I feel something weirder about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I realize something weird about myself every time <laughs> I watch that movie. Um, yeah, so, uh, and I guess to sort of wrap up everything, I mean, Universal has gone on to try to reclaim uh, the magic of those of those early films and try to make those franchises viable again. Um, most successfully with The Mummy in uh, 1999, starring Brandon Fraser. Um, that spawned its own series and with spin-offs and everything. Um, but they 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 tried again with like The Wolfman, uh, starring Benicio del Toro and uh, Dracula, Dracula Untold, Untold. Um, and most recently. The Mummy with uh, Tom Cruise, <sighs> and th- th- this is supposed to be the start of their brand new dark universe, as they're calling it, a series of films, which is, you know, a, a 21st century reimagining of all of these films. It's as if Universal decided to start with The Brute Man <laughs> and go from there. I'd rather watch The Brute Man again than The Tom Cruise Mummy again. Ooh, that's yeah, that's harsh. That's harsh. I actually like... There is this... <laughs> Alright, so in the, the book Terror on Tape that I mentioned in a previous episode, there's a line in the review, and this is like the best thing they can say about the Brute Man. You've probably seen worse 58-minute movies. That... <laughs> You've probably seen worse. You've probably seen worse 58 minute movies. Like that's the best, that's the most positive thing in the review. <laughs> yeah. So if you're wanting to maybe watch the brute man, maybe, uh, maybe watch the <laughs> mystery science theater episode instead. I'm going to check it out. Yeah. That's on Netflix. Um, it might be, I, I know for a while, uh, like certain episodes are Yeah, certain some, episodes. Yeah. They kind of come and go. Um, so, might be there as far as universal's influence goes we were watching house of horrors together recently and you remarked on the similarities between the bust of rondo hatton and the character of uh the thing ben grimm ben grimm. fantastic four yeah how do you feel about all right when you think of like hal moffat's experiences in the brute man and his origin story compared to dr doom's origin story are they similar um like was there i mean only in so much as like there's a disfigurement i mean i guess i'm (laughs) like do you think jack kirby and stan lee were like devouring these movies like it's very possible i mean i think like um i think it is very possible that they were both and i don't know this for a fact i'm sure it's you could readily look it up but i'm sure that like it would make a lot of sense that those guys were like big into monster movies they probably grew up with them Mm. um yeah, the thing with Rondo Hatton and the thing, I mean, he his distinctive look is like the the big coat and the and the big hat and him sort of walking around the streets at night sort of trying to blend in as best he can even though he's this big sort of hulking man with a disfigured face and and even like the blind woman in The Brute Man who is the one who sort of is his only the only person that can connect with him. And he refuses to, you know, have her touch his face. I mean, those are things that are hallmarks of Ben Grimm's character, the thing. 
um, where he dons the the trench coat and the hat. He has a blind girlfriend. Um, yeah, and then in House of Horrors, there's the, the the bust that's being sculpted out of clay. There's one shot of it where it's sort of it's pieced together and it looks just like the thing's rocky skin. And so I, yeah, I was watching it and I'm like, I can't help but but be reminded of that character and, and wonder if Rondo Hatton had anything to do with uh, with the thing's creation. Which character in the Brute Man was Joan Bemis? Was that the wife at the end, or was that the first girl that he kills? Uh, first girl, I think. The actress playing Joan Bemis was married to the actor George Dolans. And they had a son named Mickey. Mickey Dolans? Yeah. Who's Mickey Dolans? He's a musician of some sort. Uh, I believe he sings, too. Okay. Yeah. But his daughter Amy was the star of Ticks and Pumpkinhead 2. So there's some horror heritage there. <laughs> yes. Well, so what are we talking about next episode? We don't exactly know right now. We should do a Toby Hooper movie. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's do, do the Funhouse. Yeah, I've never seen that. Okay, yeah, so we'll do The Fun House. Sounds like a plan. All right, so thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we will see you next time. Bye.